the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. Arthur Friedberg has been a professional numismatist for over 40 years. His family firm, the Coin and Currency Institute, is a founding member of the Elite International Association of Professional Numismatists. He has been a member of the prestigious Professional Numismatists Guild since 1977 and a lifetime member of the American Numismatists Association. He's testified as an expert before the United States Senate Banking Committee, but dominating America wasn't enough for Arthur. He's been a consultant to the Money and Metal Program of the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations in Rome, Italy. Also in Rome, in 2001, Arthur was elected president of the International Association of Professional Numismatists, marking the first time in its history an American held the office. He's authored several books, including Paper Money of the United States, Gold Coins of the World, Modern World Coins, and Coins of the Bible. Impressed yet? We've speculated on the show countless times about D.B. Cooper's money. Well, now we're going to hear from one of the world's foremost experts on U.S. currency. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Arthur Friedberg. Arthur, how did you get into the business that you're in? Well, as it turned out, this was a family business going back many years. It was started by my father, actually, before the Second World War, back in the middle of the Depression. He started buying coins, and he made it a career. He went away to the Army. He got back, and then he started dealing full-time, and he got into coins, and he also became very familiar with paper money and he was the one that initially wrote the first paper money in the United States, which is the book that we've continued into 21 editions now. The first one is in 1953, and that book was actually the first time that the Treasury Department gave anyone permission to even take a picture of paper money. Before that, you were not allowed to reproduce them at all in any time. So it's just carried on from there, and I've always just enjoyed the business, so we've kept it going. Wow, I never knew that there was a time where you weren't allowed to photograph and print a picture of money. Well, you could, you could not print pictures of them and for a long time until I think sometime in the mid-70s or 80s, um, you were not allowed to do them in color. You could only do it in black and white and they could only be 75% of actual size or 150%. So you could never do it the same size. That's to prevent people from trying to pass them off as fake. Wow, I did not know that. So color copies have sort of created a mess of whole things. And that's why they keep on changing the money now with more security devices. And then the system for collectors to measure bills by is named after your father? Right. He decided to create a system in which every note had a particular number. So instead of when you're writing an advertisement, for instance, if you're selling paper money, instead of 
saying $1 silver certificate series of 1923, you would just say number 230, for instance. That's pretty cool. So it just makes it a lot easier, and everyone sort of uses that now. And, of course, they have to buy our book to be able to do that, so that works out quite well. (laughs) So you are very familiar with the U.S. $20 bill. Yes. D.B. Cooper, uh, who hijacked the plane in 1971, got his $200,000 ransom in $20 bills. I'm sure you've heard that story before. That's correct. I believe it came to 10,000 notes. Yes. And and most of those bills were 1963A series or 1969 series. That's right. Um, I've, I've heard there were some others, but basically from what I've seen, that there are mostly 63As and 69, mostly from the San Francisco Federal Reserve District, which of course makes sense. And then before we get to DB's bills specifically, I'd like to ask you, a, a 63 or 69 series bill, how many of those do you think are still in circulation worldwide today? Well, I'll tell you how many were made of each, and then we'll back into it. The 63As, which were signed by Granahan and Fowler, they printed, just for the San Francisco district, 169,120,000. For the um, 69, also only San Francisco, they made 103,840,000. Um, the Federal Reserve tells us that the average life of a $20 bill as of 2018 was a little bit less than eight years. So you can pretty much figure that most of these have probably been worn into the ground and submitted to the Fed, the Federal Reserve System, for replacement. Uh, There wouldn't be that many now except those that are being hoarded by collectors. Um, Nonetheless, they're really not worth a whole lot of money. Is a, if I have a $20 bill from 1963, is it worth more than $20 to a collector? A collector for a 63A would pay about $50 for it, um, for 69, a little bit less. The notes with the star after the serial number are worth about triple that. Uh, But still, that's considering the fact that they're they're so old, that's not really a whole lot of money. Right. You've been better off putting the money in the bank, as a matter of fact. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not a great return on your investment if you've been hanging on to it for 50 years. No, well, they made a lot. Remember, that's just the San Francisco district. And there are 12 Federal Reserve districts. So we're talking on the 20s, probably somewhere close to three quarters of a billion notes, if not more. So that's a lot of money. And in the the 70s and the 80s, maybe even into the 90s, were serial numbers recorded? Yes. Now, we don't, we weren't able to get public statistics until 1976. Starting in 1976, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing released monthly statistics of how many notes were printed and how many of each denomination for each Federal Reserve District. Before 1976, they, of course, recorded it, but it was never made public record. So if you wanted to find out, you could go into the archives and dig it out. We know that because you know how many notes they printed for each district. And they kept a pretty, pretty good track of how the notes were printed, what month they were printed, and then the BP keeps records of when they're delivered to the Federal Reserve Banks, because the Federal Reserve Banks are the ones that order the notes from the Treasury Department. And who would be responsible for destroying currency? 
um, those go back to Treasury. So they, they return to the they return to the Federal Reserve banks, and the Federal Reserve banks return them to the Treasury, and Treasury destroys them. And when the Treasury destroys those bills, what sort of process is there for that? Do they record the serial numbers at all? To be honest, I don't know. I would assume that they do. They, they certainly keep a record of it. I can I can get back to you on that. Okay. I, I can actually I can ask the BEP. What is the BEP? Bureau of Engraving and Printing. I'm sorry. Oh. You have to forgive me. I am not a, a professional numismatist, no. which is also a phrase I just learned. Yeah, okay, no, that's okay. I mean, I, I will, I will ask them. And assuming that some of them are working because COVID has sort of stopped everything, right? I can figure that out. But I mean, certainly there's some general knowledge of what they're destroying from what banks, even down to the serial number on each bill. I'm not sure of that. I mean, I know certainly for older notes. They have kept that. But for when you got into this level of millions and millions of notes, and this was in days before scanning, um, you can't be too sure that they actually recorded every number. Right, because it would have to be somebody sitting at a desk just going through bills and writing down each serial number. Yeah, that would be somewhat counterproductive and a waste of taxpayer money. Um, but I know in times past they did do that. But now, before scanning, I can't see that they would do every one. And why do they decide to destroy the bill? Just because it's in rough shape? Um, basically, when a note outlives its useful life, in other words, it's too worn. I mean, just like the Cooper notes, but not quite to that extent. Um, when a note gets worn down too much, then instead of the bank recycling it, they return it to the Federal Reserve System, and the Federal Reserve System has them destroyed. And when you say printing money, most of the money that the Bureau of Engraving Printing makes is not new money. You know, people say, well, just going to print the bills and then you'll have inflation. Um, well over 90% of the paper money that the Bureau of Engraving and Printing makes is just replacement for stuff that's been sent back. Okay. Well, let's get right down to D.B. Cooper's money then. Okay. He has $200,000 in $20 bills. The FBI has those serial numbers. Could he have spent that money? Um, he probably could have. By the way, what I have found out in looking at this is the FBI did, apparently did not record all their serial numbers. Because some notes from, what was his name, Brian Ingram? Mm -hmm. Some of the notes that he has come up with um, were not on the FBI list. They were from different districts. I've seen a note from Chicago. That's the G district. And I think I saw one from E, which would have been Richmond. So they didn't have all those, but yes, he certainly could have spent them. I don't know where or how, I assuming he made it out of, out of the thing alive. So, Right, we're assuming uh, he made it out alive and he's got that money in his pocket now. Would it have been easier to spend it outside the States, or would it have been easy for him to spend it inside the well, United States. To spend it outside the United States, um, you have two problems. One, you have to convert the money into, well, you have two options. One is convert the money into the currency of wherever you are. If you're going to Canada, if you're going to England, if you're going to France, Germany, Japan, you have to go to a foreign exchange house and count the money and exchange the money, in which case the money exchanger would then resell that money either to someone going back to the United States or they would send it to a bank, and the bank would send it back to the United States. 
Um, the only other option is you spend it on the black market, in which case it keeps on circulating in the black market until eventually that money, of course, has to be laundered back into domestic currency. And so it ends up back in the United States anyway. So it's probably easier to spend it here. And the FBI distributed this list of serial numbers to banks and casinos. I read that, yes. And I, I've always thought, what is a bank teller supposed to do? Is she supposed to look at a non-sequential list of serial numbers against every $20 bill that comes in? That seems ridiculous to me. Um, I would assume that if they were doing that, they would be looking at stacks at the same time. That's just the only way that makes sense. In other words, stacks of 100 at a time. I can't imagine that anyone would seriously look at every serial number. Well, the bank tellers tend to be pretty savvy. They know what they're looking for, and that's why all these notes with special serial numbers, like if you'll see a note with 111111 or very low serial numbers, those never sort of hit the public. So bank tellers look more than you think they look. So do you think his money was spent in the United States, um, in your I opinion? Have, I, Darren, I have no opinion on that at all. I've, I just don't know. My guess is if it were spent, if he made it out of the, made it to the ground alive, it would probably have been better spent in the United States than overseas. That's just a guess because of the logistics of exchanging that much money overseas. I mean, that would send off money laundering alarms right and left, even back in those days. Why, assuming he lived, why has none of the other money shown up? Why has no one found one bill? Maybe the other money met the same fate as the money Brian found, but that just hasn't washed up into a deposit yet. That's the only thing I can think of. I, I, I wonder, again, without knowing very much about this whole D.B. Cooper escapade, how did those notes end up in such rotten condition? And we would expect the others to be spendable. So maybe, I mean, just throwing out a theory, maybe they all met the same fate, but these are just the only ones that managed to wash up on shore and the others either sailed down the Columbia River and ended up in the ocean. Or they're at the bottom of the river somewhere. Oh, yeah, that's definitely very possible. Do you think if the rest of the money went into circulation that we would have found some of it? Yes. Yeah, the odd. I mean, there are too many notes and there are too many serial numbers known. Some of it would have been found. And I can't imagine with all the FOIA requests that have been made to the FBI on this that that wouldn't have been one of them. So it would have had to have been there, I would think. And to a collector, I mean, those bills would be worth quite a bit, right? Uh, well, I have found a few sales. Apparently, there are supposed to be something like 80 of them known. That's what Right, from the, the money oh. that was found on Tina Bar. Yeah, and I have found there, there's one person collecting them. And I found like there have been three public auctions of them that I've been able to trace so far. And in each case, of the notes sold for somewhere between a little bit less than $4,000 to a little bit over $4,000. In fact, the low price is $3,200. The high price is $4,112. And that one was in 2014 from the Chicago bank. If somebody came to you with one of the one of the 20s in perfect condition, what would you assume it would be worth? Um, lots more than $4,000. Although... What's interesting is part of the cachet of these notes is the fact that they were so miserably wrecked. So that would be an interesting experiment. What you'd have to do in that case is actually put it up for auction because the only way to really handle a note like this is to see what the market will bear, and that's to hit 
two bidders publicly against each other. But my guess it would be in excess of the $4,000, but not multiples of $4,000. I mean, I wouldn't go certainly much more than ten or 15000 which is still a bit of money for a note that's otherwise worth fifty. Yeah, that's a good point. It also is a good point that the uh, the money being in rough shape has kind of a cool factor to it and adds a little bit of a story. Well, yeah, I mean, these are absolutely the ugliest pieces of paper money I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I mean, they're they're pretty miserable. So you're pretty confident if he would have spent that money in the United States, someone would have found some of those bills. I would, yeah, I am. I, I think so. I don't, I don't see how it could have possibly happened any other way. I mean, at least one or two would have showed up. Yeah, and they published the serial numbers in newspapers and everything. So I assume people were looking like crazy at every 20. Like, oh, maybe it's one of these bills. The newspaper's offering $5,000. But nothing ever showed up, did it? No. Again, my theory would be, as someone who's not really jumped into this with a whole lot of effort, that all the notes were destroyed. All the notes just would have been in the same condition as the ones that, have, that we've seen that Brian has. So it's just, it's not possible for the 95,000 bills or whatever to have gone into circulation. I'm, so, I'm not sorry, not 95,000, 9,500 bills going into circulation and not being found. Uh, yeah, I would think it's highly improbable. I don't see how these could have been this miserable and the others would have been well, good enough looking to spend. That just doesn't seem to be credible to me. All right. So my guess is there, my, my, my guess really is that they're, they sailed down the Columbia River. That's probably as good a guess as any. Tide just washed them away. Based on your experience and your expertise with money, you believe that D.B. Cooper died in the jump. I made a couple leaps there, but... Um, without being an expert in jumping out of the back of Boeing 727s, yeah. I, I know there's talk now about some former military guy, what's his name, Rackstraw or something like yeah, that? Yeah, he's, he's one of the suspects. It just seems to me that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, I had always heard, and remembering when it happened, I had always followed the assumption that he died jumping out of the airplane. Either shoot didn't open or the shoot opened too late. But again, what do I know? That has nothing to do with coins. That was just basically following the media reports at the time. Was there any buzz in the collector world about that money? At the time, no. I don't think there was any buzz at all until they started showing them up at auction, and that was after Ingram got his notes back from the Fed. Got his notes back from, from the FBI. Hmm. Yeah, there, there was no... um real fervor among collectors to find them. Not that I remember. They're not as obsessed with D.B. Cooper as I am. Um, that's pretty fair <laughs> to say. I mean, although it, it's, it, it was very popular when these notes were certified, and there's some fellow now who's um, collecting them, and apparently he's able to buy them from Brian, and he put on a display of them at a convention a while ago. Yeah, I saw that. And um, one of the... One of the bills, I know the guy who owns it, and he puts it on display at the D.B. Cooper conference and everything. So I've had the good fortune to see one in person. Was that at a, at a coin and paper money show or at a D.B. Cooper show? A D.B. Cooper show. So D.B. Cooper's become an industry then? Uh, there are several books on, on Cooper. I wouldn't say it's an industry, <laughs> um, but 
there's a there's a lot of people. I mean, there was been several conferences in the last fifteen years, and then my podcast is completely dedicated to the topic. Well, it's it's certainly interesting. I mean, I don't know if it'll ever be solved. I don't know if it'll ever be solved but, either. I was hoping you were going to solve it for me. Oh, uh, I'm Columbo. I'm not. I'm not even Kojak. So, well, you're really bumming me out, Arthur, because you're making me feel like he didn't get that money. That's just my guess. I mean, it it just you know when, when you look when someone comes to you with a collection, in normal cases. They all have approximately the same quality. So they're all usually very nice. They're all usually moderately worn. Or they're all just stuff that has deteriorated into nothingness. And so my hypothesis is that if the ones we've seen are this way, the other ones probably met the same fate, and we just haven't seen them yet, if we ever will. That's a drag. I'm sorry. But if you find them, they're worth several thousand dollars. So always... Keep up hope. Keep on looking. I mean, any good one is certainly not going to be worth less than the ones that have sold in miserable condition. So, I mean, it's a long list of serial numbers, though. And I mean, and I mean, to go out next time you get twenty dollars from the ATM, tell me how many twenty dollars are anything before series two thousand and one, and you won't see any. I mean, most of the ones you'll see are series two thousand four and later. Oh, yeah. Because that's the new style. Um, and because of the anti-counterfeiting regulations, um, no one even wants to use the ones before 2004 anymore because they're too easy to fake. Are there other countries where you can easily use U.S. currency? Oh, sure. You can use it anywhere, but mainly it would be where the currency itself circulates would be in places that you probably really don't want to spend a whole lot of time in, like the countries of the former Soviet Union, Arab, Arab countries, um, countries where their economies are so bad that they don't want to use their own currency, so the fallback is to the U.S. dollar. I mean, for instance, more $100 bills are sent overseas than are used here. I did not know that either. And how often is that currency returned to the U.S.? Um, as, um, based on circulation and where in need, but a lot of that stuff circulates, um, in the country for a good amount of time. But I will tell you that they do not like the older bills. They, because of the problems with counterfeiting, with color copiers, with laser printers, they much prefer the more modern editions of the notes. And as a matter of fact, if you tried to exchange a note like a Cooper note right now, if a foreign exchange house would take it at all, it would be at a severely discounted price as opposed to the ones that you get out of an ATM today. That's how dangerous counterfeiting is, particularly in places where people don't know the notes as well as we know our own. So I shouldn't expect to find any 69 Series 20s in other countries either? No, unless they're in a stash in a bank vault somewhere. Which, of course, is an interesting theory. Did he just go and dump all these notes in a bank vault? Um, he would be how old now? In his 90s. Uh, I guess if they were in a bank vault, someone would have gotten them by now, wouldn't they? I would think so. I mean, we're, we're yeah, coming up on 50 years. Property. If they're unclaimed property, then we'd have to list the serial numbers. How quickly does it become unclaimed property? Um, depends on the individual country's law. Hmm. 
What about in the U.S.? Do you know that? I don't know what the law is there. And then they would have to record those serial numbers. Well, sure. But if you're posting unclaimed property, you have to post what the serial numbers are. Hmm. So I just sent you down a rabbit hole, didn't I? Well, I, now I'm just thinking maybe there's hope that one day some bank in Vancouver will say, oh, yeah, we have this uh, safety deposit box. It was unclaimed and we opened it up and there was all D.B. Cooper's money in there. Well, unclaimed or, I mean, if he's 90 years old and he's dead, um, someone better be paying the rent on that safe deposit box or you know it's going to be cracked open. Yeah, that's true. But you think it would have been discovered in 50 years, right? I would think so. So again, my theory is it all went down with the stuff that Brian got back. Yeah. These aren't the answers I want to hear. I, I want to hear that, oh yeah, there's a good chance that the, he just spent the money like crazy and, and got away with it. No, I don't, I don't think that happened. I mean, you just certainly had, and firstly, buying a car with $20 bills sort of triggers some kind of um, reaction. How risky would it have been to be spending that money, in your opinion? I would think that to spend it in the quantities that would be required to get rid of it would have sent up flags. Remember, $20 in those days was like a $100 bill today. Right. And if someone walked into you with stacks of 20s, you'd know, and you would say something. And I'm not sure then, but certainly today, if someone walks into a car dealer, for instance, with that, the car dealer has the same responsibilities as a bank. You have to report if it's more than $10,000. And I'm pretty sure there were even cash transaction reports required back in the mid-70s, where if you spend more than $10,000 in cash in one location, or if you spend $5,000 a day, $5,000 and $5,000 the next day, the person receiving the cash has to notify the government. There's a form you have to fill out. And at that point, then they'd be looking at serial numbers? You bet they would. So you believe the money was never found because it was most likely destroyed. Because if it had gone into circulation, we would have found some of it. Some of it would have shown up. I don't think you'd have found any in pristine condition. Um, it all would have met, I think, a similar fate to the notes that the FBI returned. And I assume the ones the FBI kept for evidence were the same as the ones that were given back to Ingram, correct? Yes. Yeah, they were in the same condition. So I think that would be indicative of what all of it would be like. All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up. <laughs> well, I'm sorry I can't be more optimistic for you all. I wonder how, I mean, do you know how many more pieces of this does Brian Ingram have? I'm not sure because um, the bills were like clumped together and even difficult to separate. Um, they've been buried in the sand, you know, at the very least a couple of months. Um, so I don't know the exact number of bills he had or got, and the FBI kept half of them also. Oh, and they're still in the FBI evidence room? Yes. I like that. But, I mean, does it even look like money anymore? No, and I mean, I, I think, I don't think it was a couple of months. This must have been more than a few months to be in that kind of condition. What, he found them in 1980? That's correct. Yeah, that's probably what happened, my guess. How long do you think, based on the condition of the money, how long do you think it was in the elements? Um, ever since it dropped. So you don't think it was buried like six months prior? Not knowing anything about how that works, um, I don't think so. 
it just seems were these found in, as loose packs or they were in a, in a packaging of some kind? The, supposedly they had the rubber band still on them, and it was a, a stack of three bundles of twenties, just loose, stacked on top of each other. And they were in a canvas sack of some kind, I guess. No, just in the sand. Brian Ingram brushed his arm across the sand to make a fire pit and stumbled across these three bundles of $20 bills. And something tells me that when he turned them in, the authorities were there to see what more they could find, weren't they? Oh yeah, they dug up the whole beach. Didn't find anything else. So those floated down or whatever and the others somewhere else, I guess. That's interesting. Also, I've learned that a... a packet of money only floats for a short while then it sinks oh because of because of the weight right yep so it's they haven't dredged the whole columbia river have they i don't know the answer to that i know there is some dredging operations that go on there from time to time but i don't know if it's exactly where but by this point there'd be so much silt build up that it's probably added a couple of feet to the bottom of the riverbed wouldn't you think? oh yeah interesting i don't think you're gonna see scuba divers in the columbia river anytime soon it wouldn't want to, It wouldn't be the place I would want to go scuba diving. No, I think not. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any thoughts on DB Cooper, Arthur? No, it was an interesting thing. All I remember about him, interesting enough, having done a lot of traveling back at those times, a lot of it on seven twenty sevens. I do remember that right after that, they sealed those back doors shut. They installed a um, what they called the Cooper vane. That would prevent the rear stairs from opening while it was, the plane was flying. Ah, so I, I did remember that correctly. Yeah, right? on those and on the DC nines, right? I think that was the other plane with the aft stairs. Yeah, I never could quite understand why they did that. I remember using them maybe twice. I believe the idea was some of these smaller airports they were flying into. They didn't have ramp trucks all the time. Right, and remember those were days before jetways in a lot of airports. Oh yeah. Yeah, I had to climb up the steps. So I do remember they disabled them right after that. And I remember thinking, what kind of nut would jump out of the back of an airplane? <laughs> would you have done it for $200,000 in 1971? Probably not. How, no. Were you alive in 71, Arthur? Yes. How old were you? I was a kid. I was 21. 21. So at 21, would you have jumped out of a plane for $200,000? No. And I remember I was in the army at that time, and they were saying about the only two things fall out of the sky, and I'm not going to say what they were. <laughs> Definitely not today. No, no, this is not for our audience. <laughs> well, Arthur, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Aaron, it's my pleasure. It's been nice talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. I appreciate it. If you're a collector of coins or currency, I'm sure you are already well aware of Arthur's work. But if you're not, you need to check it out. I'd highly recommend Paper Money of the United States. I got a copy of that to go through before this interview, and it's a super cool book with so much information in it. And just looking at the pictures of the bills with their history is just really cool. So go check it out. I also just ordered his book, Coins of the Bible, and it apparently includes replica coins. So I'll have that soon. Well, we'll have links to it all in the show notes for you. Is there a suspect we haven't covered yet or a theory you think we got wrong? Let us know. You can find us on Facebook. We are The Cooper Vortex, Instagram at The Cooper Vortex, on Twitter at DB Cooper Podcast, or email us dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Arthur Friedberg for coming on the show to give us his two cents on the case. 
Thank you to Russell Colbert for inserting a rim shot after that joke. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to the Cooper Vortex. Vortex.